We're in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We're looking at um, the letter being sent to the church at Pergamum. And here's what uh, John was told to write by the, the Spirit of God. Verse 12 of chapter 2. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you're holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent. Otherwise, I will come to you and I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who's here ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. So that's a that's the statement from the Lord. That's the, the text that we're looking at. So you got a Bible. You want to keep your Bible open there. That's going to be really helpful you know in, in, in um, Tolkien's classic writing um, Lord of the Ring um, he writes uh, Lord of the Rings he makes this reference if you want it's all based on this this ring this ring becomes a, a an idol in fact that that people must have they're chasing this ring so the ring the ring can take the desires of its holder and it can magnify their desires to such an uncontrollable and idolatrous proportion that it becomes incredibly scary to the individuals themselves. In Tolkien's storyline, the good people who can get the ring have their good intentions twisted, causing the, the, these good people to become devious, evil, even bad people, prepared to do anything, prepared to do whatever they have to do to keep and maintain the ring. It seems that they develop a such a love for this ring that they hold in their hand that they become enslaved to the ring, become addicted to the ring. The ring, in fact, you could say becomes their idol. And this idol leads them into a pathway of great evil. And that's exactly what idols and idolatry does to us. So we need to ask the question as we look at our whole text today, what is an idol? Simply this, it is anything that is more important to you than God. And I think anything that is more important than God, that's an idol. It's anything that takes your mind and heart away from God. That's an idol. It's anything that you attempt to replace God with in your life. That's an idol. And so I want to suggest that we as, we as the church today have massive struggles with all of this. It seems like we've had massive struggles with idolatry through a whole historic time. And so even way back in history to his people, Israel, whom God had chosen for himself, God gave them the book of Leviticus with the intention of steering them away from their attractions towards the, the pagan practices uh, enjoyed and accepted by other nations. And so God says to Israel, I've chosen you to worship me, honor me, glorify me. You're different from these other nations. And to make his point, he tells Israel's leader, Moses, to speak these particular words to his people from Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. Let me read them to you as we build our, our background here. The Lord said to Moses, um, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. So in other words, Israel, my chosen people, you're to be different from these nations that you 
have been familiar with or becoming familiar with, you're going to be a different people than they are. You're to, you're to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I'm the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. So that's what Moses was called by God to tell the, the, the nation Israel. So God makes it clear to Israel through Moses that God is their Lord. Israel are to live differently than the other nations. And they're not to desire the practices of these other nations. Instead, Israel are to, are to do what God has ordained and planned for Israel to do. They're to worship God, follow God, live according to God's statements, God's directions, and follow that, irrespective of what the other society around them that they're living in or whatever, whatever they're doing isn't their problem there to live this way. So whenever God calls a people, whenever God calls a person to himself in salvation, it's fair to say that, that he demands that we live a lifestyle of separation from the control of the practices encouraged by Satan's world system that is all around us in our society. See, God wants his redeemed to worship him only. He wants your thoughts as a believer to be holy on him. He wants his church, the, the bride of Jesus, to be about him and therefore to be separate and to live separately from the world, not to succumb to the ways of the world. And the church is called to be distinctly separate in that manner. And as a church, we cannot control the actions and practices of, of every supposed church with different theological thinking, doctrinal practices, different ecclesiology and a host of other differences between us, even though we profess our unity to be centered around Jesus in the Bible. We've got all these differences. What we can control is how we as a church, or perhaps how you and I as individuals, live for God's glory. The Apostle James made a very direct and very bold statement um, encouraging some of this. He writes in James chapter 4, verse 4, uh, asking some, making a tough statement. You adulterous people is how you refer, he opens that verse. Uh, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Do you, do you not know this? This is elementary, he's almost saying. He continues, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, if you want to be a friend of the world, then that person makes himself an enemy of God. So James is laying it out just as uh, Moses had to lay it to the nation. So it's very clear. You can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God. It's, 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 it's that simple. So I'm sure that none of us want to make ourselves an enemy of God. But, but I want to suggest to us that the church in general may be in grave danger of doing just that. We might be making ourselves an enemy of God. You see, Christianity, I want to suggest to you, has become pragmatic in both outlook and practice. It's something... Uh, it's something if, if something produces a, a result of people supposedly accepting church, then, then we tend to do that. If it'll make you feel comfortable, we tend to do that. If it'll mean you coming and your friends coming, then we, 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 we'll, we'll have the intent of doing that. We prefer to give the hearers moralistic and therapeutic messages rather than a clear gospel presentation whereby we clarify how lost and how close to hell they are because Jesus Christ is not their Lord and their Redeemer. So, so these are basic truths. These are essential truths. Now, with all of that, let me welcome you to the Church of Pergamum because that's exactly what they were like. The, the great city of Pergamum, this church was, it was an inland city and was the capital city of Asia Minor region. It was a, a central location for academia, religion, culture, it all sort of met there and exploded there in a sense. Pergamum boasted an incredible library of over 200,000 volumes and they were all handwritten. And in fact, 
um, Mark Antony gave them as a gift to Cleopatra because he had such an admiration and interest in her. And the ruins of Pergamum, they actually remain today, they're situated in Pergamum in Turkey, so you can go and visit them. So with regard anyway to the church in Pergamum that we're looking at, scripture has a, a silence that's connected to it as to when this church was actually birthed, when this church was planted. <clears throat> Scholars would suggest to us that it was during Paul's second missionary journey. journey. He was uh, ministering in the nearby region of Mycia, and they think because of that, he possibly birthed the church here in Pergamum at the same time. As the Apostle John writes here about the church, he would have been familiar with some of the issues surrounding the, the, the church. See, the city boasted a variety of temples dedicated to gods such as Zeus, Athena, Dionysus, Asclepius, and even with this uh, being even with all these gods, the main worship of Pergamon was that actually of emperor worship. And so the believers living in this city were under constant threat of life due to the expectation of that all, every citizen had to offer an annual sacrifice to Caesar. And to refuse to do this could actually result in death. Well, such fear is a terrible thing, but perhaps a greater fear should be that of offending God himself, as we've seen in the history of um, Israel, and as James referred to as well. So our text opens with the angel of the church in Pergamum, receiving this letter for the church with these introductory words from Jesus himself. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, now these, were intro these, these introductory words were issued as a warning, a warning to the church. Uh, there's a reminder to the believers that, that Jesus will return to judge, and the sharp two-edged sword that he wields in judgment is in fact the word of God, the Bible, and he will judge accordingly and appropriately. His words are to a church that has become riddled with compromise. They were guilty of compromising with the world. However, not everything was completely negative about this church because in verse 13, Jesus says, I know you dwell, and then refers to Satan's throne. So he's saying, you live right in the heart of this, this incredibly satanic time. In the city of Pergamum, there's a, a large altar to the god Zeus. This may have been dedicated to Satan himself and therefore referred to as being his throne. This wasn't the only altar, however, in the city. There was a, a shrine built to worship uh, Asclepius, who was the, the Greek god of healing. So if you wanted healing, you would go there in the hope of finding that. Also, emperor worship, as, worship, as I mentioned, uh, was um, rampant within the city and expected within the city. And any of these or all of these together give reason for Jesus to refer to Pergamum as being Satan's throne. This was a, a, a dynamic mix of satanic thinking. This would have been a, a dark city in which to live, possibly like some of our international cities today uh, around the world. And to the believers living in the midst of this city, Jesus Christ says these words, you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. So it's believed that this faithful Christian, Antipas, was actually roasted to death inside a brass bull during the missions campaign of persecution against the believers. So these believers were familiar with cost of martyrdom and they'd lost one of their own to such a cost. And Jesus makes mentions of, mention of this and he honors them because in the city where Satan dwells, they were faithful to Christ's name, and they never denied their following of Jesus. And like any group, any group of true believers, Jesus was their Lord, and he fully wanted them to become a people set aside for his glory. He wanted them to live differently than the rest of that society as his testimony and witness to who he was. But Jesus, in all of that, he still had some problems with his believers who make up the church in the city of Pergamum. 
let me read verses 14 and 15 to you. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So these are some concerns. Some within the church were accepting the old doctrine of Balaam. And here Jesus is referring to the Old Testament a kind of the, the struggle that Israel had, Israel faced from Balak, the king of Moab. We read about it in Numbers 22, chapters 22 to 25. Basically, the story is this. Balak was frightened of the Israelites, and he, he didn't want them because of that. He didn't want them to settle close by to him. So he contracted uh, Balaam, who was a sorcerer and a prophet, now not one of God's prophets, and he asked Balaam to, to put a curse on Israel. So Balaam... Um, been contracted by the king he tried to do this three times and every time he tried to do it god stopped him from doing it and instead of cursing israel he ended up blessing israel and because of this balaam decided to dishonor israel we read about this in um, numbers 25 1 and 2 while israel lived in shittim the people began to whore with the daughters of moab these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods so they get together and invite the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Now, Balaam further encouraged the Moabite women to enter marry Israelite men, so creating an interrelational immoral culture. And soon Israelites were eating food sacrificed idols and beginning to practice sexual immorality uh, along the way and all sorts of idolatry. And Numbers 25 verse 3 tells us that Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, that's another God, and the Lord was angry against Israel. You see, God is angry against his people here. This is his people that he's, he's called to himself and he's angry against them because they're going to the ways of the world around them. Um, God was so angry against the set-apart people that he caused the slaughter of 24,000 Israelite men, we read in Numbers 25, verse 9. So 24,000 Israelite men are slaughtered by God because of this attraction to the world, because of this idolatrous practice that they're succumbing to. And so for the church in Pergamum, this meant that some were taking part in pagan feasts and were practicing extreme libertinism, and they're coming to church to worship Jesus. They would just add that to their way of life. Now, here in the church in Pergamum, we also have another group who were holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We don't know exactly what it was that the Nicolaitans taught, but we know that the Lord hated their teaching, uh, as stated in Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, where we read, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, says Jesus. So he has this hatred for this work. It's a false work. So we can conclude that this uh, this church preached the gospel of Jesus, there's no doubt about that, but they weren't protecting the sheep from the wolves and their false and corrupt teaching that was sneaking in to cause confusion in the church. In recent decades, there's been a, a great enthusiasm towards evangelism within the church. We have embraced a whole seeker-sensitive practice as we, uh, as we the church, as we the believers, want to be careful never to upset, never to offend anyone who supposed and supposedly turn them from the gospel. But I think if we look at the Bible, look at this history here, the Apostle Paul had a somewhat different outlook, and he's one of these great ministers who proclaimed the gospel favorably and fearlessly. Listen to his words in the 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 17. Here's what Paul writes. Don't become partners with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? 
He's asking these rhetorical questions. What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we, this is now speaking to the believer, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell and will walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch the unclean thing and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So we see what, what God wants. We see what God says. That's a frightening text for the church today. So with this church accepting the practices of the world around them, they were guilty of discouraging the believers from pursuing a life of holiness and instead causing the believers to fall back into habits belonging to their pre-Christian lifestyles to accommodate people. Like the church in Pergamon, we today will become, uh, will become compliant to the input of the world to the church if we choose not to live separately from societal, secular thought. If we want to just embrace it and let it come, then it's going to come to us. It might help us to appreciate the seriousness of this, as we note what, what Jesus Christ said to these believers in verse 16. Here's what he says to this church in Pergamon, whom he loves. He said, therefore repent, because of this stuff that I've told you, that I've pointed out to you, therefore repent. If not, if you don't repent, I will come to you soon, a war against them, with the sword of my mouth. I'm going to do this if you choose not to repent. Literally, Jesus, the head of the church, is telling his redeemed followers to stop their compromise with the world. Stop being unequally yoked with the world in the church. Instead, we are to cleanse and purify the church. And as Jesus looked at these believers in Pergamum, he expressed that he expected them to live out their faith and not just attempt to be doctrin doctrin doctrinally correct, with that, he is not suggesting that you can be doctrinally incorrect and live okay as a Christian. What you believe and how you interpret the Bible will dictate how you live as a follower of Jesus. I, I fear today that this is where we have a problem. Listen as to how Eugene Peterson translated this verse in his message translation. Enough. Don't give in to them. I'll be with you soon. Jesus speaking. I'm fed up and about to cut them to pieces with my sword sharp words. Jesus expects his bride, the church, the redeemed, us, to be pure. So he expects his redeemed to know his truth and to live his truth. And this is what God said to his people, Israel, back in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 2 to 5. I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land. You shall not walk on their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord God speaking. That's what we have to do. So God wants his people to live different from the world. Jesus wants his church to live different from the world. So our question is this. Are we willing, as the redeemed of Jesus, to live different to the world around us, that they may know we belong to Christ, whatever that outcome might be? And as Jesus finishes his letter to the church in Pergamon, he encourages them with three incredible blessings. In verse 17, he promises the faithful believers some of the hidden manna. See, Israel received manna from God in their wilderness experiencing experience, and God is promising the true believer spiritual bread, spiritual food that the world cannot see. Jesus mentions uh, this in John 6, 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give 
for the life of the world is my flesh. So the bread, the manna, is Jesus Christ himself given for your redemption. What an amazing offer, amazing privilege. Secondly, these true believers were also promised a white stone. The victorious athlete in the ancient world would receive a trophy made from stone with, with their name engraved into it, like we would get today in some respects. And this trophy served also as their entry ticket into the banquet for those who were victorious. They take that and say, look, I won this, it's me. So this serves as a reminder that all true believers will be welcomed into the great eternal heavenly banquet. If you know Jesus, follow him, live for him, then you're going to have that stone, you're going to be welcomed. Final point, Jesus will give you a new name. As you look into, as you look at the, the stone trophy that you've received, there's a, a new name written there. It seems to be a name known only to Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Most likely a name of affection for you from Jesus. It is the name by which Jesus will call you in eternity. So, so let's live as a people faithful to Christ alone today. I want to encourage you to do this, brothers and sisters. This is so important that we live in this way and set all idols away from our lives. These are wonderful truths that I trust can encourage us. Stay blessed. Have a great week and keep pressing on for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks.